0: Amen. Good job, Praise Bam. Thankful for just I, I the... I, I don't know about you, but I can sense the energy in the room this morning. It just There's a lot of it, things to be excited about. Amen. God is moving in His church, and we are thankful that it is His church and not ours, so He's totally in control. So hey, new Sunday, new book of the Bible. We're going into the Gospel of Mark, and uh, we're going to look into the life and the teaching of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to ask you to read with me this morning. We're going to be alternating slides, so I'm going to read the first slide, and you join me on the next slide to follow here. It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Read together with me on verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. And then together on verse 7, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Then the last verse says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And this is God's word. We're thankful for the Lord and his word. So there was a guy um, named E.V. Rue. He translated Homer's Iliad and Homer's Odyssey and a couple other works that were originally written in Greek by Homer. One of the earliest writings. uh, How many of you were required to read that in high school? Remember the Odyssey or the Iliad? Yeah, the rest of you went to Alvin High School, I guess. And so, um, just kidding. Anyway, but Evie Rue was 60 years old when he did all this. And his entire life, he was an agnostic. He did not believe in God or he wasn't sure if there was a God. And if there was a God, you know, probably didn't want to communicate with us. And so he translated these two words. And Penguin Publishers back in the 1950s came to him and said, man, you did such a good job with these Homer uh, writings we want you to translate something else more popular in Greek. We want you to translate the Gospels. And this is a man who did not believe in Jesus Christ. Well, his son said, it'll be very interesting to see what Father makes of the Gospels. It'll be still more interesting to see what the Gospels make of Father. And one year into this project, he became a follower of Jesus Christ. Let me challenge you this morning. If you're not really sure where you're at with Jesus Maybe you're exploring this whole thing. Maybe you don't know whether Christianity is true or not, or maybe there's many ways. Let me just challenge you to do one thing. Read the Gospel of Mark. Read it and read it and look for the face of Jesus in you in, in, in that, those Gospels. And I challenge you to, that you will see Jesus Christ. And you will realize what an amazing man this was. And that he was more than just a man. He was the God man. And I just challenge you. It's amazing how people will say, I really don't know what I believe, and I really don't know whether I believe in Christianity, and then they will not take time to read the Bible. They will scroll and scroll and scroll, and of course the average person, what, seven and a half hours a day on their phone, and we won't spend 30 minutes just to read the Bible? Let me challenge you. If you're really being honest about your pursuit in exploring Christianity, take some time to read the gospel and read specifically Mark. So, First of all, some people might ask, why are there four Gospels, you know, and why, why don't we need just one, you know, and why aren't there maybe six or seven? Well, many of you know, like, in some people with lots of money have their own home theater, right? And the, spe- the one speaker on their television could be more than fine to hear the movie. But when they put four speakers around the room, it sounds like the airplanes are just flying right overhead, right? It enhances the sound, even though all four speakers are projecting the same movie sound it enhances the sound from four different perspectives that's the same thing that god is trying to do through the gospels in fact just follow with me here and this this may seem somewhat technical but if you will follow this and think of this as you're reading the gospels it will help you tremendously first of all the reason there's four gospels is the, the different things that they provide first of all what they're written to matthew wrote to jews that's why Matthew is so obsessed with the prophecies being fulfilled. Because the Jews had all these prophecies of Messiah, so he's answering so many prophecies. Mark is written to a Roman audience. In fact, many people think it was written to Roman Christians who were being persecuted. Because Mark was written, best guess, the same year that Rome caught fire and Nero blamed who? The Christians. And so Christians were being persecuted like crazy. Many Christians were, Nero actually even in his gardens for parties at night would light Christians on fire to be the candles that would light the party. And he, he was f- throwing Christians to the lions and a lot of Romans were going along with this persecution because he blamed the fire, the burning of Rome on the Christians even though that absolutely was not true. Um, there's a lot of ro- Latin references in the book of Mark that's not in the other ones. In fact, like the other gospels use Jewish timetables. Like, for example, um, the third hour in the in Hebrew concept is 9 a.m. because the sun came up at six. The third hour was the third hour they started their day. And in, in then, where Romans had our timetable. So, and what's funny is some people say, "See, look, Mark says this time, and Matthew says this time. That's a contradiction in the Bible." No, Matthew, being a Jew, is doing Jewish time. Mark. Speaking and writing to Romans is using Roman time. No contradiction there. Um, Mark even makes reference to two guys, uh, Rufus and uh, another guy in, in the book of Romans that were the two sons of Simon the Cyrenian the one who carried the cross for Jesus, his two sons became Christians and they were probably in this church in Rome. So he's using a lot of Roman references and a Roman audience. Luke is written to the Greek population and John is to the world or some people would say to the church, but I believe it would be broader than that, to the world. So they're writing with a different audience in mind. Also, these, each of these authors has a different style. Matthew is more of a teacher. Mark is more of a to- storyteller. Luke a historian and John a theologian. Um, they present Jesus differently, not contradictively, but from a different angle. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah King. And of course, being a Jewish audience, what are they looking for? Looking for a Messiah. Mark presents him as a suffering servant. Luke presents him as the son of man. And John presents him as the God in the flesh. Look at the genealogies. Matthew traces it all the way back to Abraham. Why? Because he's trying to prove to a Jewish audience, Jesus was the Jew qualified to be the Messiah. Mark doesn't include the genealogy because Romans don't care. They don't care who Jesus is related to. They're like, what did he do? And Luke traces him all the way back to Adam because he's trying to prove that Jesus truly was a man. He was the second Adam. He was the God-man. And also Matthew and Luke have different ways of tracing it because one is tracing it through Joseph, Jesus' stepfather and, or adoptive father, and The other one is tracing through Mary, his biological mom. And so, therefore, some people look at the two genealogies and say, oh, they contradict. No, no. One's tracing through mom. One's tracing through dad. And, of course, John says, I'm going to trace Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you see the three different angles there. And then... What they feature or what's the main thing of, of, of them, Matthew's talking about Jesus' sermon and Jesus taught and Jesus preached and Jesus did this. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on Jesus' teaching, but it's all about miracles, miracles, miracles. Why? Because his audience is Roman, and Romans are like, yeah, their they're, they're, phrase I often will say is, spare me the labor, just give me the baby. You know, forget all the details, just tell me what you need. And that's what the Romans were. They were very impatient people because they're used to ruling the world, and they want what they want, and they want it now. And so Mark, um, you will see, it's interesting, he spends 80% of the book covering three and a half years, and then he spends a full 20% of the book on the last week. It's like fast-paced, doesn't even go into details of Jesus' birth, just says, here's Jesus being baptized, miracles, 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 teaching, teaching, teaching. And then he slows down, and says, now we're going to spend several chapters on the last week of Jesus' life. Luke spends a lot of time on the parables. John spends a lot of time on the relationships. You know, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And Jesus saw his friends, Mary and Martha, the brother, the, their brother Lazarus died, and Jesus wept. And you see all about relationships. So, so four different angles you can really appreciate and then when they sp- focus, Matthew s- focuses on what Jesus said, Mark on what Jesus did. Again, Romans were action-oriented people. Luke was all about what Jesus felt. Jesus, over and over again, Luke talks about how Jesus had compassion on the multitude. And John tells you mostly what Jesus was, that he was God in human flesh. And then the last one here, how they end is really interesting. Matthew ends with the resurrection. Mark ends with the ascension. Luke ends with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And John Ends with the promise of Jesus coming again. So do you see how that th- this is not redundancy? This is like four different angles, no contradictions. Again, it would be like a car accident happening outside, and there's four witnesses. And the police, what they do to, when they get to a, an investigation, especially if they think there's going to be a contradiction or people trying to make up stories, they will separate the witnesses and they'll interview them separately. So let's say they go to witness number one, say, "Hey, what happened? The red car hit the 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 blue vehicle. Okay, great. Then they go to another witness and say, okay, what happened? The man driving the car hit the woman driving this car. Okay, then another one over here. What happened? The Chevy hit the Ford. And then another person could say, this person was speeding and this person just was sitting at the stop sign. Is there a contradiction in those stories there? No, you put it all together and you've got, you know, a red car Driven by a woman just sitting at a stop sign, hidden by a blue idiot, you know, in a Ford. Which, you've got to be an idiot twice to drive a Ford. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. So, also, this is, uh, he's also called John Mark, okay? And his mother is Mary, not the Mary Mother of Jesus. Mary was a super common name, still is today. And uh, she had a very big house, and this is probably where the church met This is where the church was meeting when Peter was in prison and they were praying for him to get out. Um, Mark was very close to Peter. In fact, some people kind of jokingly call this Peter's gospel because Mark's primary source was him interviewing Peter. And so you will see Peter highlighted a lot because John Mark is saying, okay, Peter, what happened next? So what happened next? What happened next? And he talked to many other people, but he talked mostly to Peter. In fact, First Peter, in Peter's epistle, he talks about his closeness, how Mark is, almost, is his son in the Lord. Maybe he led Mark to Christ. We don't know. Mark was much younger than all the other followers of Christ. That's why he's not an apostle or named amongst the 12. And he also had an on-off relationship with Paul. Paul uh, was partnered with Barnabas to go do missionary work. And Barnabas says, hey, I got a nephew, Mark. Can we bring him along? He's like, sure. And so they're all doing this missionary journey. And at one point, Mark says, ah, I quit. I'm homesick or whatever. I'm going home to my mom. And Paul was like, quitter, you know? And so a year later, when they're going to go on another missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, can we bring Mark? And Paul's like, no, not bringing him. And the Bible says they had no small contention over this. I mean, it was arguing, probably yelling and screaming, who knows what, but can't imagine men of God doing that, can you, right? And so they're arguing over it and they finally said, you know what, fine, you and Mark, go do your missionary journey, I'm gonna get Silas over here, we're gonna do our own missionary journey. Which is really cool, because God uses even our arguments to double the gospel. So therefore, don't go out and start an argument, okay? <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to say. It's just but God can use those things to, to spread the gospel even further, So Mark is the shortest of all the four Gospels and is very fast-paced and action-oriented. Mark uses about 11,000 words. Matthew uses 19,000 words. So you can see quite a, a contrast there. Mark is also the most translated of the Gospels. When missionaries go around the world and they encounter a tribe or a clan of people who don't have the Bible in their language... The first thing they do is learn that tribe's language or that clan's language. And then one of the first things they do after that is translate the gospel of Mark. Why? Because it's short and it gets to the point. And so that's, that's an interesting fact for us there. There's also a chiastic structure, for those of you who are following that, um, of the gospel of Mark. It begins with an angel witnessing his coming. It ends with an angel um, witnessing his going away. It's, it also secondarily says, you are my son, And then it talks about, at the end, truly this man was the son of God. And as we work our way in, who can forgive sins but God? And are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Talking about being God. And then it talks about the guilt of the scribes, and it ends with the judgment of the scribes. And it's interesting to see how this is... Mark took a lot of time to map this out, to communicate with this literary device. Who is my mother, and how how is Christ David's son? Talking about his lineage. And then, let's see, it talks about doing God's will and obeying God's command. The most important part of God's will being love. And then who is that makes the winds obey him? Talking about how he has the authority over nature. And then they say, by what authority do you do these things? So it talks about his authority. And then Jesus is called the son of Mary. And then later he's called the son of David. And see the parallel there? So now we're getting to the meat of the sandwich. And it's, who do men say that I am? And Mark is all about who is Jesus? Who is Jesus And of course, what is Peter's answer? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he encounters somebody who wants to know who Jesus is. He said, said, good teacher. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. He's answering the question, who am I? I'm God. Um, And then the very center here, it it has a prophecy about his, his own betrayal, his passion, his resurrection. And then he repeats it again consistent with our chiastic structure, and the very middle is, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So what is the main point of Mark? Jesus is God's son, God come in human flesh, one of the, member of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and the Father is saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. If you don't get anything else out of the book of Mark over the next, I won't predict, but 25, 30 weeks, listen to Jesus listen to Jesus, listen to Jesus. I can't tell you that enough. Throughout your day, listen to Jesus. When you're making a big decision about whether to take this job or not, get on your knees and what? Listen to Jesus. Every morning, spend some time in the Word and do what? Listen to who? Yeah, y'all, y'all with me this morning, right? When you're trying to figure out who you're gonna marry, what? Listen to Jesus. So that's the main point of Mark, and hopefully you'll get that out of it. So he talks about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the presentation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Okay? And Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven more than any other book. But he's saying this is the beginning. And what's interesting about this, this kind of tells you some good theology here. For example, if you talk to someone who is Church of Christ, okay, they believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. Is that biblical? No. They not only believe you have to be baptized to be saved, they believe that you have to be baptized by them to be saved. That's, I'm talking about being pretty narrow, okay? Does the, it's interesting that Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Well, if baptism saved, why would Paul be saying, I'm thankful I didn't baptize any of you, but I simply just shared the gospel with you. Because what saves? The gospel. What is baptism? It is a sign that you've been saved. Hey, I believe that Jesus died for me, he was buried, and he rose again. So, then, So when you ask someone who goes to the Church of Christ or any other denomination that believes baptism saves, you say, well, what about the thief on the cross? And they say, oh, well, that was the Old Testament. The New Testament didn't start until Jesus rose from the dead. Really, where did you get that from? Because my Bible says that the Law and the Prophets, Moses and all the, the first five books and the other 34 books, the Old Testament, lasted until who? John the Baptist. So when does the New Testament begin? With John the Baptist. And then since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. There's how you determine when the Old and New Testament begin. So the thief on the cross doesn't get an exemption on baptism because he was in the Old Testament. No, he wasn't in the Old Testament. Clearly not. He was under the ministry of the teaching of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. So it's the beginning of the gospel. Now we know what the gospel means in our context. But understand this. This was a very common word in those days before Jesus. It was the announcement of a herald. So, for example, you're in this village, and a lot of your sons and your fathers go off to war, okay? And you're at home worrying what's happening. Are they winning? Are they losing? And then a a messenger would come running into the village, and they, they would say, Hear ye, hear ye. The good news of the battle is we won. Yay! So the good news, the euangelion was the Greek word, saying here's the headline news. Headline news. And so whenever one of the Caesars would have a child, the herald would go into the town center and say, hear ye, hear ye. Behold, the son of Caesar has been born. And everybody would be like, yay, yay. And so that's how they got their news. They didn't get it on their phone. They didn't get it on CNN or Fox. They just heard it from a herald. And the herald would announce good news, or here's the headline uh, the good news, and sometimes there'd be bad news, but people always were looking for the good news. And so Caesar was always making announcements saying, uh, you know, here, here the good news of Lord Caesar, because they would say, uh, Kaiser Curios. Kaiser Curios meant Caesar is Lord. And John the Baptist comes and says, hey, hear ye, hear ye, Christos Curios, Jesus is Lord, and we have a new king in town, and it's not Caesar. They feel are like, "Whoa, what are you talking about? That's treason. That, well, that's like, uh, fine if you want to believe that. But it was really a co- big contradiction. It'd be like someone getting on the news today and saying, I am now the president of the United States. I have taken over. I'm sure there to be a lot of people in Washington, D.C. would have a big problem with that, right? That's the controversy of Jesus because they were told, you must hail Caesar as Lord. And they're like, no, Jesus is Lord. That's why you see that phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, over and over again in the Bible, because it was a big deal. So it'd be like, it'd be like if someone said, so you need to submit to you know, President Trump or President Biden or whoever the president is. You say, no, Jesus is my president. That's how controversial this was. And then notice it's of Jesus Christ. Christ was not his last name. He did not get letters in the mail saying Mr. Christ. It wasn't his, the way his name. It was It's his title, Jesus the Messiah. And, and it introduced him as the Son of God. So Mark just gets right to the point and says, here's where we're going with all this. We're going to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he says, as it is written in Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, and he also throws in some Malachi there. He kind of mashes up the two verses because he's lumping it all together in the prophecies. And he says, "The, the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face. So a little over 600 years before, it is predicted that the Messiah will come and he will have a predecessor. He will have a front man, someone who will go and pave the way and prepare the way. Um, so whenever and that was again, familiar language. Whenever Caesar would travel to a certain city to make a speech, they would send front men and when they would literally go down the highway and if there was a tree falling over where everybody else was kind of stepping over to riding around it, they'd clear out the tree. If, there was, if part of the road was broken, they were going to smooth it out. Then they'd go into town and say, hey, get all this trash picked up. Let's make the buildings look better. They would prepare the way for Caesar to come. It was a big deal, and they wanted to make his way smooth so that everybody would be ready to hear Caesar. And this is what John the Baptist is doing for Jesus. He's not physically touching roads. He's preparing people's hearts. He's moving out anything in the way that would block them from hearing Christ. And he's doing that by telling them, to repent of their sins. So he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. So if the Messiah is going to kick off his ministry, you think strategically, let's go to downtown Jerusalem, right? No. John's out there in the desert. Wilderness most times in the Bible means desert. means a forsaken place. It's a wild place. So wild animals and not much is growing out there. And what's interesting about that is it's a picture of desperate times. He's showing, hey, this is the spiritual condition of our country. This is a spiritual condition of our world. It's a wilderness. It's dry. It's barren. It's not producing much of anything good. It's a dangerous place. And that's where John goes to preach his message. You can see where John preached today. This is pretty much it. This is the desert area where John the Baptist is preaching. And you think of the Jordan River. You think of something amazing like the Mississippi or the Colorado. No, it's just a muddy stream. It's not much. (laughs) And, you know, he could have picked a lot of, lot of better rivers or other bodies of water that would have been cleaner. And, again, it's a picture of, of mourning and repentance of sin. And I'll talk about that more in a second. So he goes out in the wilderness and he prepares the way of the Lord. And, again, the word way, we still use it that way today. Highway, freeway, tollway, expressway. What does it mean? It means a road. So when the Bible talks about the way, It's talking about a road and make the Lord's path straight. So as believers in Christ, that's our job. We're like John the Baptist. We go out into the wilderness, this wild, dry, and dreary land of the world that we live in, and we prepare the way of the Lord by lovingly removing people's obstacles that keep them from believing in Christ. And probably the most important thing about this is that we ourselves are not the obstacle. That's why it's so important that we live a godly life that we live according to the wisdom of Scripture and we make good choices and that we don't do foolish things. People say, well, why would I want to be a Christian? Look at you. Your life's more messed up than mine. And that doesn't mean that we don't have flaws. doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. But we don't purposely live in an immoral situation or ungodly situation or stupid situations that make people say, well, why would I want to listen to you? Our job is to prepare the way of the Lord and we make the path straight. In Isaiah 40, this is interesting Verse three, the prophecy about John the Baptist, it says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Notice, what do you notice about the word Lord there? All capitalized, which means what? Jehovah or Yahweh. This is God, okay? And make straight sure the desert the way for our God. And who's John the Baptist making the way for? Jesus. And what is this prophecy saying? That Jesus is God. Like, for example, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they don't believe that Yahweh and Jesus are the same. They believe that Yahweh, Jehovah God, all uppercase Lord, created Jesus. But that's not what the Bible says. You look at this right here. And John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming baptism and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's doing this for the Lord, for Yahweh. But then in the New Testament, in Mark, says he did it for Jesus. Why? Is that a contradiction? No. It's because Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus and God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, the one God, he did it for our God. So John, um, he's a quirky guy, right? In fact, I've really not been impressed with any media presentation of presenting John and what he probably was really like based on the scriptures until The Chosen. Man, that flat iron beard, that is bad. It is awesome. He, if you haven't watched The Chosen and seen John the Baptist, I'm like, man, they nailed it. That is so biblical the way John did. He was just kind of a rebel rouser and just kind of a a punk in many ways. And he really made the Pharisees and everybody mad. And it's just amazing. In fact, watch one episode of Chosen where Jesus and John are sitting along talking. And how were they related? They're second cousins, and you can tell that they love each other, and they care about each other, and John the Baptist is about to go confront Philip for taking his brother's wife, and Jesus is like, well, just be careful (laughs) because Jesus knows what's going to happen. It's going to cost him his life, but John the Baptist was like, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to tell this guy and put him in his place. But his baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was part of preparing the way of the Lord. Now, is John's baptism the same as New Testament Christian baptism? yes and no. I believe yes in the sense that they were looking at the Messiah, repenting of their sins, and putting faith in the one to come. Um, But the purpose of it also was to prepare the way of the Messiah, and that way it was kind of different. But here's where a lot of people get tripped up. They say for the forgiveness of sins. There's two Bible verses in the New Testament, this is one of them, that started the Church of Christ. I referenced them earlier. And they got this whole idea of baptism washes away your sins because it's right there. Look, you're supposed to get baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And that one little word, and there's another uh, verse in Acts that says for the forgiveness of sins. Those two verses both have the word for in it. And it's a simple misunderstanding. The word for means several different things in English as well as in Greek. If I said, I'm going to go to the store for milk, I am going to the store to get milk. But if I say someone is going to jail for murder, are they going to jail to get a murder? No, they're going to jail because they committed murder. Which one applies here that's consistent with the whole New Testament saying all you have to do is believe? You get baptized because your sins have been forgiven. It's so easy, but yet because of misunderstanding of that, even though everywhere in the Bible it says believe, 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 and Paul doesn't go around telling people get baptized to be saved. He tells them believe to be saved. And as a result of your belief, you need to be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. It's, it's extremely simple if people would just study the Bible. But there are whole denominations and even cults started because of little misunderstandings because someone doesn't take the time to study more clearly. So that's the understanding of the word for there. So the prodigal son, he repented. And John the Baptist is teaching a baptism of what? Repentance. And that's kind of what's missing in the American gospel. The American gospel is you can be rich, live the American dream, you can do all these things. And by the way, after you die, you can go to heaven if you just pray the simple prayer. And we've got millions of Americans claiming to be Christians, but their life doesn't match it at all because they prayed the prayer. And nothing was mentioned to them about repenting, of walking away from your sinful lifestyle. And we're not talking about a process. We're talking about a one-time decision. What is the word repent? It's a military word It means about face. So you're going this way in your life. You're living your life and doing things your own way. And John the Baptist says, hey, don't do it your way. Do it God's way. Repent and turn. And when you turn, that's when you're saved. When you say, I turn my back on that. Now, will you mess up? Yes, we all do. But at that moment in time, when you turn away from this way of doing life to following Jesus and believing that he died, he was buried, and he rose again, and that's my only ticket to heaven. Now you're going in a different direction, but at this point, point where you did the 180, that's when you were saved. And that's, so the, the, the prodigal son did a 180, and he came home. Now, you know, who, who was the most sorry that the prodigal son came home? Anybody know? The fatted calf. <laughs> All right, so the Gentile conversion, did you know baptism wasn't, A New Testament thing, all in the Old Testament. If 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 a Babylonian or a Canaanite or any other one of the the other tribes that were non-Israel said, you know what, their God's the real deal. I want to be one of them. Guess what they did? They baptized them. And they had those water troughs everywhere, the, the purification things. And they were they were used so if someone was healed of leprosy, what would they do? They'd go into the purification. You know, if you came in contact with a dead person, guess what you did? You dipped in the waters of purification. And if you were a Gentile who wanted to become part of the Jewish uh, faith and following the true living God, you dipped in the waters of purification. And so that's what was happening here. It wasn't a brand new thing, but here's what's new about it. Is John the Baptist saying, hey, you think you're God's children? No, just because you're related to Abraham doesn't mean you're a child of God. You need to act just like a leper just like an unclean person and just like a Gentile and come repent of your sins and be baptized. So it was an interesting transition there to this type of baptism. And it's interesting that all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. We're talking a 20 mile hike. Who was Jesus' strategist trying to say, here's how to start a new campaign. Make people walk 20 miles out into the desert to hear this. But, that, but Jesus doesn't make it easy, and, and so much of Christianity today is just, hey, just pray this prayer, life will be easy, everything's great, just being a Christian is easy. The Bible says all that love God and live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And in America, we don't want to suffer anything. We think if we're forced to do anything, we're like, oh my gosh, we're being persecuted, no. <laughs> the rest of the world is being persecuted much more than we are. And the, what river did they choose? The River Jordan, as I said, it's kind of murky, not very impressive. Neither is John very impressive. He's dressed in camel's hair. There's the latest fashion. It's itchy. It stinks. But he's wearing this on purpose because what did the Old Testament prophets wear? Most of them wore sackcloth. And Elijah, who's, who he is fulfilling prophecy of, wore camel's hair. Okay. So it was a picture of, we need to repent of our sin, that we are bearing the burden of sin upon us. And he had a belt around his waist. And so in 2 Kings eight, he's fulfilling this prophecy. It says that, that Elijah, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. And he owes Elijah the Tishbite. And so Moses, I mean, the Old Testament prophesies that Jesus' forerunner will be just like Elijah. And sure enough, John the Baptist fulfills that prophecy. And what did he eat? Locusts and honey. There's your balanced diet, protein and carbs, right there. Okay, he wasn't on a keto diet. He wasn't all carbs, getting all heavy and all stuff. He had a balanced diet. So I think there's something biblical there. And he says, he preached saying, after me, he comes he, talking about Jesus, who is mightier than I. John did something amazing. He was always pointing how great Jesus was. Always pointing how great Jesus was. Think about this, though. He's before Jesus. He's first. Thousands are coming to him, want to be baptized by him. Everybody's excited about John the Baptist. The Pharisees are like, where did our crowds go? Where did our people go? Oh, they're out 20 miles away. Listen, some crazy guy in the wilderness. And it made them furious. And here's what's interesting. He says, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So rabbis had rules in relationship to their, their uh, students. And if you've been watching The Chosen, again, I keep beating that drum, but it's, it really spells out great, the relationship between rabbis and students. And rabbis could tell their students to do a lot of things. They could say, hey, go prepare a meal for me. Go get the Passover ready at this house. Go get a horse. Go get the temple ready. Go get the synagogue ready. They could tell them to do all kinds of things. But there came a limit to where, okay, okay, you can't tell them to do everything. They're not their slave. They're your student. So the rabbis came up a list of things you can't ask a student to do, and one of them was you can't say, "Hey, would you unloose my sandals?" And and so a student would say, "Hey, no, 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 I'm not I'm not that that lowly that I'm going to untie your sandals. I'll do something else for you, but I'm not doing your sandals." John the Baptist says, "I can't even I'm not even worthy enough to do that." So pretty interesting partner. And and of course, what does it take to, to loose sandals? To stoop down, and to come before Jesus and do this? And you know what? That's a picture of being saved. If you're not doing this and bowing before him and saying, I give you my life, you're in control, that's not true salvation. And John the Baptist says, man, I'm not even worthy to do even that. He, Jesus, must increase, but I, John, must decrease. Let that be the theme of our life. Every day, less Gary, more Jesus. Less of my sinful flesh and selfishness and more of the love of Christ. How does that happen? It happens by spending time in the Word, spending time on our knees, and being humble. So this is a weird way of doing ministry, right? One of my favorite movies that we'll see next, next Sunday afternoon is Megamind. And of course, Megamind, he comes out and he tells um, Titan, you're not a real villain. Oh yeah? He said, he said there's superheroes, there's supervillains and there's only villains. And, and Titan goes, what's the difference? And Megamind says, presentation. <laughs> Remember that part of the movie? And he comes out with a big bag and all this great music and lights and smoke and everything like that. And you would think that presentation would be the way Jesus would start his ministry. And now it's like, no, it's totally the opposite. It's, it's humble in every aspect. The introduction of Jesus, first of all, Jesus has a humble name. You, you know, when movie stars become stars, often they'll change their name because if their name is like John Smith, it's like, well, well, let's come up with something more creative than that. Everybody's named that. Well, Jesus was super common name. And, it, and the way they said their names back then, they didn't have a last name. They would say Jesus, son of Joseph. So it would be Yeshua ben Joseph. Or, because Jesus often identified with King David, it would be uh, Yeshua ben David. And so you'd say Jesus or Yeshua, son of Uh, King David, I fall on that ancestry, and we still have that today, like MacDonald or MacPherson. Mac in Gaelic means son of, okay? If you want to do it in English, we end it with son, like Patterson or Johnson, you know? And so they would say the Jewish way is Ben. Put Ben in front of something, and that meant son of. So uh, very humble beginning with a name, humble birth, Mary. A teenager already starting off life with a bad reputation that she didn't deserve. Born in Bethlehem on the wrong side of the tracks, Bethlehem Ephratah, which was the poor side of town. Um, A humble messenger, John the Baptist. Not some guy in a a Versace suit with a Rolex on, but he's clothed in camel's hair and eating a crazy diet. Humble clothing with the camel's hair. Um, A humble method. Asking people to do something ridiculous. Here these proud Jews and say, you need to act like you're a Gentile, a leper, or an unclean person and get baptized. So asking for humiliation there. It's in a humble river, the muddy Jordan, and it's a humble message. Repent and confess. And so Jesus is setting the bar pretty high with a humble beginning there in a sense of what he's asking for and calling for. James 4:6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. You know why most people don't become followers of Christ? It's pride. It's, I got to share the gospel with someone recently talking for a couple hours, and it came down to, why do you not want to give your life to Christ? And they're like, it's just kind of scary. It just means I have to give up control. I won't be able to do things the way I want to do them. And I'm like, well, you can keep control in your life, and you see how it's going so far because this person's life was in a mess. Or you can humble yourself, and God will give you grace he says, I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, what does the word baptized mean? It means to be placed into, okay? Um, now, a lot of denominations will jump on this and talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit as it being a secondary thing, but that's not what this is talking about for sure, and we can debate those other verses. It talks about simply being placed into the Holy Spirit, which happens at the moment that you're saved. Jesus said that as many as believed on him have the Holy Spirit. It happens the same time, you, I'm sorry, that's Paul that said that, the same time in Romans chapter 1 that you accept Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And in fact, he says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are none of his. So that the two go together. I'm not saying that there aren't experiences of the Holy Spirit later, but you don't get the Holy Spirit later. You get the Holy Spirit the moment you're saved, and then the Holy Spirit comes to reside in you. He says, I baptize you with water. Here's, here's where they kind of get this mixed up. This is Matthew's version of the same thing Mark is saying, but he elaborates. Matthew goes into more detail as usual. He says, I baptize you with water for, remember what that word for means? Because of repentance. Because you repented, I'm going to baptize you. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He adds to this, uh, not contradiction, but it's more detail. He says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And our charismatic and Pentecostal friends will see Oh, yeah, this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of fire, okay? And don't take my word for it. Just listen to what what, what the Bible says, okay? Um, Let me, hold on a minute. He goes on to say in the very next verse, verse, I'm not taking this out of context. Let's keep reading what Matthew says. His winnowing fork is in his hand. That's talking about judgment, separating the wheat from the chaff. And he will clear the fleshing floor and gather his wheat. What's the wheat? True believers but the chaff, what's the chaff? Unbelievers, he will burn with unquenchable fire. So when the Bible says he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, the Holy Spirit for who? Believers, fire for who? Yeah, so you don't want the baptism of fire. <laughs> baptism, to be placed in fire means you go to hell, which is what he does with the chaff. So if you want to prove a different experience with the Holy Spirit, go for it somewhere else, but not in this passage right here. So in the Bible, you talk about wheat, and then there's chaff. Chaff was wrapped around the wheat, but all it was was an outer shell. And there's a lot of people claiming to be Christians, but all they have is the outer shell. There's really nothing on the inside, and that's what Jesus is talking about separating. So back to E.V. Rue. 60 years old, not a believer in Christ, has, tra- has translated Homer's Iliad, Homer's Odyssey, and other Greek writings, and then they ask him to translate the Gospels, and his son says, I'm really curious to see what the Gospels will make out of my father. I'm really curious to see what the Gospel will make out of me as I go through Mark. My goal as your pastor is that I will come out more like Jesus after these, during and after these studies than ever before. My, I'm really interested to see what the Gospel of Mark will make of Revolution Church. You know, I, I, I'm really proud of y'all for everybody being excited that we're going into this. We're going to, if you're not on version, please get on there soon and send a friend request to me because I'm going to send out tomorrow morning a a reading plan of the gospel of Mark. I want us as a church to be reading it every, you know, the first 15, 20 minutes of your day reading the gospel of Mark. So literally we are all of one accord and one mind. And I'm really curious to see what Mark is going to make out of your life, especially if you don't know Christ as your savior. I challenge you again, I can't ask you enough to, maybe, maybe this afternoon you read it through or read 15 minutes every day. It's a short book and you can get through it. Because here's the bottom line of what we're talking about. Jesus said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, and that's whether it's the gospel of Mark or Matthew or whatever, whatever you hear the word of God and you believe in Jesus who, uh, the, you believe in the Father who sent Jesus, you will have eternal life. At the moment you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior, you realize that's my only hope of salvation, you are saved. It starts with, the word of God. If you're ignoring the word of God, you really don't want to know what God's plan for your life is. But if you will get into the word and you trust Christ, he will save you. It says he doesn't come in the judgment. Remember the whole thing with the fire, wheat and chaff, but has passed from death over to life. Jesus draws a line in the sand and says over here is death. You want to pass, cross over this line? Trust me as your Lord and Savior. Get into the word, understand what it says about me and trust me as your Messiah. My question for everyone here today is, have you crossed that line from death to life? I'm not talking about when you die and then it's decided we'll go to heaven. The Bible says the moment you trust Christ, you have eternal life. Have you crossed that line? I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes and just pleading with all of God's people this morning to pray. Pray that God would open hearts and take the blinders off of people's eyes so that they could hear and believe the gospel this morning. And if you're here this morning, whether you're watching online or here in the house, and you've never put your faith in Christ, or maybe you have reason to question whether you truly have, it's really simple. You repent and turn away from your life. You believe Jesus died for your sins, all of them, that he was buried and buried all your sins with it. And that on the third day, he literally bodily rose again and is coming again for those who trust him. Right now in your heart, make that decision to trust Christ. It doesn't mean you have to understand everything. It doesn't mean you have to get your life fixed right now. It means you just give your life to him so that he can fix it. Father, thank you for the gospel of Mark. I pray that we would become more like Jesus because of it. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Amen. If you made a decision to trust Christ today, please let me know. This is my cell phone number. You can text me or call me at any time. Um, And we're going to do communion. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me as those who are serving communion would come forward. And they will have COVID precautions in place. They have gloves and masks. Um, And at this time, we're going to prepare our hearts for communion. The Bible In 1 Corinthians, Paul clearly warns us to not partake in communion if our hearts are not right with him. So it's important that we take time to confess our sins and we are thankful that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And just make sure your heart is right and there's no walls or any barriers between you and your Lord and that you are confessing all that. And then when you you have done that, then you can come forward and be served the, the bread and the wine. There are Two choices of the fruit of the vine. We have grape juice. If you prefer not to take a vine, we also have wine. The grape juice is on the outer edge, correct? And the wine is in the middle. Is that correct? Yeah. Outer two rows. Okay, cool. Um, And then after you're done praying, you can partake. Go return to your seat. And when pretty much everybody's done, then we have a song to kind of focus our hearts on what the Lord has done for us. The song is not just to kill time. It is to truly focus on the words so that we truly appreciate what Christ has done for us. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you that you forgive sin. Father, we ask for the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to recall sin. because Lord, we do it so much and so often that it's hard to remember. And of course, you're not asking for a grocery list. You're asking for a change of heart. So, Lord, we confess our sins to you this morning. Lord, we've said things that we wish we could take back. We've neglected to do the things you've asked us to do. We've seen other people in need and been too busy. We've made decisions that were totally based on selfish desires of our flesh and not your will. We've followed our own way and not your spirit's leadership. The list goes on. We thank you, Father, that Jesus Christ died for all those things. We're thankful that you saved us so that we could remember what you did. Focus our hearts on your broken body and your shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been taking communion since I was nine and been a part of churches where we did every week. So I've literally probably taken communion over a thousand times. And I'm still amazed at the love of God still amazed that he would do this for me, that his body be broken, and his blood, the one who did nothing, gave everything for us who deserve nothing. Remember the body of Christ when you partake. It is the blood of Christ that washes away sins, not baptism, and I'm thankful that his blood was perfect. Remember the Lord as you partake of his blood. Amen. All right. We're going to do question and answer time. Amanda, you up for this? (laughs) All right. Uh, While she's coming, let me remind you to stick around if you can for lunch. We're going to have life group training and the teens will have a life group uh, as well. We have Central Barbecue today, so some of you might decide to come with life, life Group Leaders today because of that, I imagine. Uh, next Sunday, we'll have the t-shirts here. Uh, again, $10. All right. So, and let me just say one more thing uh, before we get into the questions here. Um, with the potential merger, I can't stress enough two things, prayer, and number two, patience, patience. Uh, best case scenario, it'll take five months. Um, and we're, we're going and we've been advised it will probably cost approximately five thousand dollars in legal fees just to make it happen. So it's not an easy process. Like, oh yeah, next week we'll be there. It's not. It's not that easy. Okay. So just be patient and, uh, but be praying uh, throughout the whole process. I appreciate that. All right. Okay.
1: Explain the mark of the beast.
0: Oh man, Let we're go. just going for the juggler. <laughs> first thing. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. So. Revelation says, how much time do you have? Uh, Revelation says that it kind of tells us that it is a literal mark because it says without it, no man could buy, sell, or trade, okay? So commerce will be controlled by it. Um, It obviously then has to be something tangible, either physically seen or scannable. So I believe it, and it says they'll take it in the forehead or the forehand. What's interesting is Satan's a copycat because it says that the children of God have the mark of God on their forehead, but it doesn't say that it, it does it in a more spiritual way. So Satan has a physical copycat for the spiritual reality of who's, who's the children of God. And it says that those who refuse the mark of the beast will be beheaded. So, and we think, wow, that just sounds so crazy. That sounds like something happens 100 years ago. It happens every day in other parts of the world. People are losing their heads, literally. So it's not too inconceivable to think that that's literally going to happen. I don't believe that um, a true believer uh, will, will have... I, okay, let me say it this way. I don't believe that if you're a Christian today and the rapture happened tomorrow, you will not be here to make that choice. There is what the Bible calls tribulation saints, people who are left behind and realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe my Christian friend was right. And then when they get a chance to refuse the mark of the beast, they will. They'll lose their lives. And it's one of the I don't know if sad's the right word. One of the most um, dramatic scenes in the Book of Tribulation. In the Book of Tribulation. The Book of Revelation is we're up in heaven looking down and asking the Lord while we're watching these people suffer, saying, How long, O oh Lord? How long? And he says, You know, just be patient, be patient. And then he comes and intervenes. Okay. But they will go through a very difficult time, but he says, that he will give them robes of white because they um, persevered by the word of their testimony. So they stuck to their, their guns and they did it. So um, Mark of the Beast is something, it's an economic thing, but it's also a spiritual thing because what the, what the Antichrist will do is, I'm the emperor of the world, you need to follow this new economic system and you need to bow down and worship me and you accept the marks of the beast, it's one and the same. So that sounds weird, you're mix, mixing finances with religion. That's what the whole world has done prior to the United States. Okay? The United States was the first to say, hey, you believe what you want to believe, the government's not going to be involved. But every other country in the world is like, no, you'll be Muslim, what are you talking about? You know? And you have Christians in India losing their lives uh, because they will not become Hindu, because Hindu is the state religion. And there's even Christian religions, like Germany, did you know it has a state church? It's the Lutheran church, it's the state church. You have taxes that go to the state church. England has the Church of England, the Anglican church. The United States says, no, 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 we don't have a government and church mixed together. It doesn't mean that believers can't be in government, though. That's a whole misinterpretation of that. Um, Anyway, that's enough on the Mark of the Beast. Sorry. Hopefully all the other answers will be much shorter than that.
1: From what Jesus said to the thief on the cross, we assume the thief went to heaven. Does this mean that the thief already had an understanding of the Christian belief and just had not accepted Christ yet?
0: Yes, that's very safe to assume he was a Jew. So that means he grew up in synagogue. He heard about Messiah all the time. He just chose to live his life his own way. And then he realized what that cost him and realized he uh, was crucified. He even said to the other thief, hey, shut your trap. This guy's done nothing wrong. We deserve what we're getting. He repented. He realized what he, he wasn't asking Jesus, get me off this cross. He knew he deserved to die. He just said, remember me today when you enter into paradise, which is interesting You say when you enter into heaven, because paradise was, Hades was in the lower parts of the earth, and there's two sides. There's the side that's of everlasting torment, and there's the side where they called Abraham's bosom. So prior to the resurrection, everybody who was dead was down there, and Jesus, when the Bible says he led captivity captive, he went down into Hades, not to suffer, but to set captivity free. And so everybody who was saved, so the thief on the cross went down with Jesus to paradise and they're like, I've only been here a half a day. <laughs> Boom, we're out. You know, all these other people have been there for thousands of years. And then that side is still to this day empty. So when people falsely say Jesus went to hell, like literally down in the grave for three, for three days, like torment in hell, that's so false. That's so false. He was victorious. He went down to set prisoners of war free. And so he was, you know, he was celebrating while his, while his body was in the grave. He was not suffering in hell. He suffered on the cross for our sins. That's why Paul calls people who believe that stuff enemies of the cross, because on the cross he said, it is finished. Not in the tomb it is finished. Okay, that's important. Because most of your prosperity gospel people will teach you Jesus burned in hell, was tormented by demons for your sins. And that means, well, so he wasn't done on the cross, he wasn't finished, and that's heresy. All right?
1: If baptism saves... And only saves after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Then none of the disciples were saved, nor were any of the people they baptized before Jesus died. And this emoji.
0: Exactly. Good emoji. Because that makes no sense. Because you see no record of any of the apostles getting baptized again in the New Testament era. They were, all, And many of them weren't even baptized by John. So, if, again, if it was so important, what's the deal there, you know? So, it. It's very inconsistent to believe that baptism saves, because you've got 100, literally 153 verses in the New Testament say, in order to be saved, believe or trust. And then you've got two verses, because they misunderstand the word for, they say, oh, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And it, it, it's baptism because of the forgiveness of sins.
1: In Mark 1.4, is it the translation of the word for? Or the context that helps us understand the meaning regarding baptism and the forgiveness of sins.
0: Yeah, context is everything. Context is everything. Again, if I said, you're going to jail for murder, you're not going there to get it, the murder has already happened, this is a result of your bad behavior. So yeah, context is everything. Did I answer the question? I think I did. All right. Yes.
1: <laughs> what scriptures talk about Jesus coming back after all have heard the gospel?
0: One of the Gospels, it says, in this gospel, of the kingdom will be preached unto the end of the world, and then will be my return. And I think that's Matthew the 24, 25. I'm not sure. Somebody check me on that, but it's in the Gospels. It talks about this gospel, of the kingdom, will be preached unto the ends of the world, and then my return. And read the question again, because I'm sure. not sure I answered it.
1: Okay. The question is, what scriptures talk about Jesus coming back after all have heard the gospel?
0: Yeah. So that one right there. I'm sorry I don't know the reference by heart.
1: I don't have any other questions.
0: No, um, yeah, read that. You can leave out names if necessary.
1: Prayer request for someone who fell and collapsed her lung and may require surgery if, they don't inf- if the lung does not inflate on its own.
0: Okay, definitely do that. All right, let's, uh, let's stand, and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Lauren, would you come to the mic and dismiss us in prayer, please? And pray for this one with the collapsed lung, as well as all the other things going on. If you want to buy movie tickets, you can. They'll be at the back table. Again, you can buy one for everybody in your family. And for every one you buy, you get a free one to give away. And this really could be an amazing outreach for our church if we take this to heart. I mean, who doesn't want to go to a free movie at Studio Movie Girl? You don't have to buy any food if you don't want to. Um, And so it's just just say, hey, I got these tickets for you. I hope you can make it. So be thinking and pray about that. Again, you can buy them with Venmo at the back table. Um, Charles and Amanda will be back there. All right, Lauren. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you, Father God, first of all. We just want to thank you for all the gifts, Father God, for the blessings, grace, and mercy. And, Father God, we just want to please be with those, Father God, right now that are suffering with illness, suffering with, with family members that are ill. Just help them and restore them, Father God, and put our angels by their side,
1: for the, uh, especially for the lady, I'm assuming, that uh, has fallen,
0: Father God, and, and needs a miracle to help reinflate inflate her lung. Father God, just put the right person in their path, the right health care worker. Father, thank you as we go out from here. Bless our steps as we go out, and keep us safe, Father God. Bless our homes, our family, and Father God, our health. In Jesus' name.